You know, it's a little challenging to look at all those headlines as they they pop up um, because it just reminds me of how divided our country is on so many issues. I mean, those are important conversations for our nation to have, right? Conversations about politics and racial relationships, um, about human sexuality and the war on terror and, and, and war overseas. And yeah, I mean, all of us know, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody about any of those topics? I mean, isn't it amazing how quickly those conversations can turn kind of nasty and ugly? I mean, it, it tends to sort of bring out something in us that it's not always good. I mean, it's amazing how quickly those conversations can turn into something that you never expected that they would be. And yet, we really believe, those of us who follow Jesus, that it's important for us to engage in those issues because they really have something to do with the welfare of our country, the the city we live in, the state we live in, the nation that we live in. But it does really raise a question. Okay, if we're following Jesus, how does that influence the way that we have those conversations? How does it influence the way that we enter into those kinds of fights? So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that's what we're going to be looking at. And if you're with us as a guest this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I really feel like you've picked a great day to come. I think what we're going to be talking about today can genuinely be helpful to you. But also, I think it will at least sort of explain to you some more about what it is that that our God requires of us and what you can expect from followers of Jesus when you engage in these kinds of conversations with them. So to to dig into this, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, You can use your Bible or the app on your phone, tablet. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning or you're not sure where to find 2 Timothy in the Bible, somewhere in the seat under or around you, there'll be a red Bible. You can get it and you can turn to the page number that's listed on the screen up there. So in just a minute, we're going to look at how this passage that was written about 2,000 years ago uh, still speaks very directly to this topic that's kind of front and center for us today. But as you're turning there, I want to try and answer a question that I heard a couple of times last week. Um, Last week, Bill Clark, our directional leader, sort of kicked off this series and listed out some of the topics that we were going to be looking at. And a question that I overheard some people saying is, now, why, why are we talking about this at a church? I mean, shouldn't we be talking about more churchy things? Why are we entering into some of these kind of issues here in a church setting? And the answer to that is pretty simple. Um, we are weighing into these issues because as we do that, we're actually following the example that Jesus Christ left for us. Because when he was alive, he was not afraid when it was appropriate to to enter into and speak into these sort of politically motivated hot-button issues of his day. Uh, There's a a fascinating story from his life where, again, remember, first century Palestine— is occupied by the Roman army, right? So this land that had been the land of the people of Israel for centuries, now this brutal Roman army is taken over. And they're in charge. And they're charging taxes to all of these people who were there. And they were not popular. So there's all sorts of conversations going on in that day and age. How do we relate to the Romans in this government? What's right? What's wrong? And my imagination kind of gets carried away sometimes. And I I would even imagine that for Jesus, like the, the conversations he would have with his friends over the dinner table... I'm sure that politics came up. Because if you look just at his his disciples, his sort of core group of friends, you've got people with very different opinions and experiences. Yeah, you know, over in this corner, you've got Simon the Zealot, right? He identified as someone who was part of the Zealot party, and their goal was to drive the Romans out of Israel by any means necessary. They wanted to raise up an armed rebellion to sort of kick the Romans out. So you've got him on one side, and then sitting right across the dinner table, right, you know, in the other corner— You've got another disciple of Jesus, Matthew. 
Matthew was a tax collector who, who basically is a Jewish person who's collaborating with the Roman Empire. He's actively helping them administrate the empire that they've gotten. Right? So you get these very different sort of political views and experiences, even in Jesus' little core group. So I'm sure that some of the conversations they had over dinner or by the campfire were just fascinating. Um, but there is also one example of a story in Scripture where Jesus tackles one of these issues head on. And he does it in a way that I really think can teach us something. So the, the scene sets up like this. Again, there's taxes that are being levied. People don't like it. So some people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes or not? This is a, a big issue of the day. What You're a teacher. What, what, what's your take on this? And his response is just brilliant. He says, why don't you get out the coin that you have to use to pay the taxes, right? And we've got a picture of it here. He says, well, whose picture is on that coin? Whose image is on that coin? An image is a pretty loaded word, right? And they say, well, it's, it's Caesar's image. He says, well, then I think maybe you should give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what is God's. Right? And a lot of this comes back to that loaded word image, right? Because the Jewish people from their earliest scriptures, they knew that they had been made in the image of God himself. So Jesus does two things. Right, One, he actually weighs into the issue, takes a stand, and answers the question, yes, you should pay your taxes even though it's the Romans. But then he also sort of answers it in a way that, that gets at some of the heart issues that are going on beyond that. He says, sure, you need to pay your taxes, but more importantly than that, you need to remember that you were made in the image of God. So while you owe Caesar some coins, you owe God your life. You owe God your wholehearted devotion, not because he's the political leader, but because he is your creator and your Lord and your maker. You were made in his image, so use that image to give back to him all that he deserves. So that's kind of the same pattern we're trying to to get at in this series. We're trying to, to talk about the actual issue, but also find ways to think, okay, does the power and the message of Jesus' life and the gospel, does it somehow get at some issue that's behind the issue? So keep that in mind as we talk this morning about this. And, and one other thing for you to keep in mind, right? We, we've got to figure out how to weigh in on these issues well because it is clearly part of what God has called us to do as followers of Jesus to really fight for the good and the welfare of our cities and our country, right? Yeah, all throughout the Old Testament, there are calls to, to strive and work for the welfare of your people, the welfare of the city in which you find yourself. So part of what it means to follow Jesus well is to do that, to be engaged, But if we're following Jesus, we have to be engaged as followers of Jesus. We have to be engaged in these conversations in ways that honor Jesus, that reflect him and his love and the work that he has done in our lives. So whatever our opinions might be, we can't just sort of blast into the conversation however we want to and assume that our approach and our opinions are always right. Instead, we really have to look at the teaching and the wisdom and the counsel of God and let that inform not just what we believe— but also how we communicate about what we believe with others. Not just what we're fighting for, but the way that we are fighting as well. And that's why I love that last week when Bill was setting this up, he he listed out some kind of ground rules for fighting fair. Just some like ways to engage in conversations with people where you you act like Jesus would. And we thought those things were so helpful. We actually had them printed up again in your your program this week, and we'll do it all through the series. So if you you turn to that place where you can kind of take notes on the sermon, you'll see them written out there, kind of these rules for fighting fair. So that's going to sort of determine how we talk in here together today, but we also wanted to determine how you talk when you engage in these conversations outside of the sanctuary. 
So keep that in mind as today we kind of jump into this issue of what does it look like as a follower of Jesus to talk about Islam and terrorism and the issues associated with that, Syrian refugees trying to get into the country, uh, politics in the Middle East, and, and they're sort of difficult to understand relation with the religion and the different forms of Islamic religion around there. And to do that, we're actually going to go back and look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, which may seem like sort of a strange place to start, but, but stick with me and I think you'll see um, where we're getting there. So a little bit of background on that. So 2 Timothy, what we know is that book of 2 Timothy is actually a letter. It's a letter that was written by a Christian leader named Paul to a young pastor, a young leader named Timothy. And Paul was a mentor and a friend and a guide to Timothy. He had, had sort of raised him and, and really helped him sort of launch in this career in ministry that God had called him to. But at the time that Paul is writing this letter, he's in a really rough spot. He's in a Roman prison, and he knows he's not getting out of prison this time. Right? He knows that the execution order has already been signed off on. And any day now, they could walk down the hall, open up that door, and he's going to lose his head to a Roman executioner. So when Paul then, realizing this is sort of where he's at in life, when he takes the time to write this letter, that's what his mindset is. He knows these are my last words to Timothy. This is, this is my last chance to communicate to him just what is essential, the heart of what I want him to hear. And it's just fascinating because what he talks to him about is basically encouragement. He tries to encourage him to stick with the mission that God has given him, to not give up on that, to not fall away from that. He's like, Timothy, you have been called and gifted to lead people and to share the gospel with others, to tell people who don't know that there's good news and hope and grace in Jesus Christ, to tell them about it. And don't give up on that. Don't lose heart. Don't get pulled away from the mission that God has given you. And, and I want us to look at a few verses and see exactly how he chooses to do that. So we're going to start out in verse 3. So the first couple of verses, there's just some sort of general welcome. And then Paul, talking, says this. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Okay, so Timothy, I'm thinking about you. I want you to know you're not alone. I'm praying for you. I'm thinking of you. You're on my mind. You're in my heart. And he says, you know, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I can be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. There's Timothy, I would love to have one more face-to-face meeting with me. That, that would just fill me with joy. That would encourage my heart in these days as I wait for my end. And I want to see you again because the example, the faith that you've got inside you. Timothy, I just get so inspired by your story. Your story is a legacy of faith of how God has worked through the generations to craft your unique life and to call you to share his love and his life with other people. If I could just talk to you again, we would talk about those things and it would do my heart good. So part of this letter is encouraging him, encouraging him to try to visit if he can before Paul's end comes. But it's just interesting to see how he goes on because he builds on that in verse 6. He says, for this reason, right, that is because of the deep faith that you have in your life. For this reason, I remind you not to give up. Instead, you need to go for it. You need to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then look at this. He says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. Right? Other translations may say things like timidity and things like that. But Paul is talking about fear. The fear that you and I know and love. The fear that all too often gets into our minds and hearts. He says, Paul, Paul's talking, he says, Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear. Instead, he gave you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. 
And because of that, because you have power and love and self-discipline instead of fear, what do you need to do? You go for it. He says, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, I'm just encouraging you. Don't just sit there, man. You've got to get up. You've got to stay involved in your mission. You've got to go for it. God has called and gifted you to share his love with the nations. It's just like what Allison read earlier. God's call for the church is to let all of the nations know that love and grace and hope and healing are available in him. He says, Timothy, don't ever lose track of that. And it's just fascinating, to me at least, right? This is the last chance Paul's going to have to talk to Timothy if he can't make that trip. In the final words that he chooses to say to him, don't be afraid. Timothy, don't be afraid. I wonder if he, if he knows Timothy so well, maybe he's kind of heard some reports of how ministry is going there. Maybe he just, he knows that when you're doing gospel-centered work, there's always pushback. There's people pushing against you. And maybe he started to see some signs that in the way that Timothy's interacting with things, maybe fear is kind of getting into the driver's seat a little. And it's sort of steering him just a couple of degrees off course. It's calling him to maybe just hold back a little bit when he shouldn't. No, Timothy, don't, 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 don't say that. Maybe that fear is kind of whispering and it's starting to lead him to make some decisions that he shouldn't be making given what his mission and call is. So Paul just faces that head on and he says, Timothy, my friend, God did not give you the spirit of fear. Whatever you do, don't let fear drive the decisions in your life. And more importantly for that, it's because those decisions are going to keep him from doing and going after the mission that God has given him. He says, don't let fear pull you away from the mission God has given you, the unique call God has put on your life. Don't let fear keeping you from the gifts that God has given only to you to use. Timothy, hang in there, man. Be encouraged. Go for it. God's given you the spirit of power, the spirit of love. Let his love and his power drive the decisions. Don't let fear take the wheel. And it's interesting because that message that, that love is stronger than fear. You see that all throughout the Bible as you look for it. In fact, John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends when he was here on earth, years later as he's reflecting on the central truth, the heart of Jesus' life and message, he says this. He says, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. You might look at that passage, this passage talking about love and fear, and think, okay, that's kind of a strange place to go if we're going to be talking about political issues and and how do we relate to terrorists around the world and Islam and Syrian refugees and all those things. But I think that really this is where we have got to start, remembering that through the work and power of Jesus Christ, love wins. Love wins. That perfect love drives out fear. Because I really could be wrong about this. But when I watch the news, when I have conversations with people, when I hear the kind of culture-wide conversations that are going on about issues like how we relate to Islam and terrorism and Middle Eastern states and Syrian refugees, it just seems like an awful lot of the things that people are talking about are motivated by fear. They're driven by fear. Fear of people who are different than us. Fear of the dangers that we might run, the risks that we might run. Fear of what might happen in an unknown and uncertain future. Right? Fear that some of the violence we see around the world, that we see increasingly in our own country, is going to come and land on our doorstep and touch us or someone we love. Those are the fears that are driving so many of the conversations. And what's tricky about this 
We should be afraid of some of those things, right? Some of those fears are absolutely legitimate. We live in a world where we have some things that we should be afraid of, right? We live in a world, unfortunately, you guys students, you are growing up and inheriting a world where every year more and more people think it's a good idea to strap on a suicide vest or get an assault rifle and walk into a public place and kill as many people as they possibly can. And some of those people are motivated by their understanding of what the Islamic faith teaches or what they think it teaches right so we have reason to be afraid it's not just pie in the sky oh love drives out fear we can just this is not going to be an issue right so in my mind it's really not a problem when we have these cultural conversations how do we really deal with these things as a nation or as a church or as individuals it's not a problem when we ask the question what is my fear telling me to do how do we actually address these fears because we need to do that The problem, I think, at least, is in a lot of the conversations that I see and hear and am a part of, it's the only question that gets asked, right? The problem comes when people who are following Jesus ask the question, what is my fear telling me to do? And they stop there. And they never go on and ask the question, what does love require of me? And try to balance out the answers of those two things, right? Because the God that we followed said that no greater love, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a friend. The God that we follow, you know, the one who reminds us that perfect love drives out fear, says the world around us will know that we are truly Christians, that we are followers of his by the way we love, right? By the way we love each other, by the way we reach out in love to the world around us. So if we can, I just want to try to get really practical with the time that we've got left. When it comes to these issues, right, Islamic faith around the world, Middle Eastern countries and politics, terrorism, Syrian refugees... What does it look like for followers of Jesus to actually ask the question, what does love require of me? What does it look like to appropriately and legitimately try to address our fears, but also bring into the conversation this voice that says, we need need to say that love has a voice in this as well. We need to try to balance that out, realizing that sometimes our country may make different decisions than our church would make or that we as individuals will make. I mean, these are complicated questions, and we're not going to have sort of three easy bullet points of how to make these decisions. But we've got to be committed as followers of Jesus to keep all of the important voices together in the conversation. So what does it look like to have this conversation with love being a driving voice? I think one thing that it absolutely pushes us to do is to do one of the things that's listed out in those ground rules for fighting fair that Bill talked about last week. Love requires that as we have these conversations, we fairly and accurately represent the positions of other people. And honestly, this is something that is hard to do, I think, in this issue. Because if we're going to do this, all of us, and I include myself first and foremost about this, all of us probably need to make a commitment to learn and be in conversation with people to learn more about what the Islamic faith actually says and how that relates to Middle Eastern politics, and and how this goes, right? Because a lot of us, we have really strong opinions about what we think it believes, but many of us have not done a lot of the work to figure it out on our own, and and I'm including myself in that. Instead, we hear sound bites on the news, or we hear voices from people out on the extreme wings, and we just don't actually know what reality is. And the truth is, it's a complicated issue, right? Even this week, as, as Bill and I were talking, and as we were looking at different things, right? There are some scholars who know a lot more about what Islam says and stands for than I do who say, no, really at its heart, it is a religion of peace. And the jihadists, the people who come and take certain verses and twist them to sort of give it this violent edge, 
they're violating the heart of what this religion is all about. They're taking some verses out of context and using them for evil. In a way, they are doing exactly the same thing that Christians did for centuries when they used Scripture to justify what we did in the Crusades. So you've got sort of one side that's arguing that. And then you have this other side of like really smart scholars who know a lot more than I do who say, no, no, if you really study this, like at its heart, there is a thread of violence that runs through this religion and the people who act out in violence are just being true to the heart of their faith. So here's the thing. If we're not experts, right, if we didn't grow up Muslim, if we don't really know enough to engage in this conversation well, I think we have to be humble about this. I think we have to engage in some of these conversations realizing we may not know all that we think we know. I think we would really be wise if we would do what James, the brother of Jesus, suggested to all believers that they do when he said that they should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I don't know about you guys, but I get those in the wrong order a lot. I'm usually pretty quick to speak and pretty quick to angry, and if, if I have to, I'll listen. But really, when we enter into these conversations, if we're going to do it fairly, we've got to have the humility to realize there's some things we don't know, to do the work to learn, to, to find people that we may know at school or, or at work who have a Muslim faith and background and just say, what does your faith mean to you, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure that as a 40-year-old white guy who grew up in the Midwest, I know much, as much about this as you do. And, and while you may just be one voice, I would benefit from learning what your one voice is, what your experience has been. See, we've got to do the work of listening and of learning. Because when we do that, when we do the work of listening and learning, then we are really in an incredible position to do what Paul was calling Timothy to do, which is actually to to reach out in mission to people around us, to share about God's love with them. Because when we do the work of learning, then it's a lot easier for us to clearly and lovingly and fairly point out the real differences between our faiths. Because there are some. Right? There, there are some people, when they talk about different religions, they say, no, you know, they're all the same. They're pointing to the same God. They're different paths moving up the thing. You know, if you talk to people who are really serious about their faith, being a Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, they're all very clear, like, there are differences here. You can't just sort of gloss them over and say it's part of a universal human religious impulse. There are real differences in what they claim to be true and not true. And if we take the time to learn that, then we really know sort of where are the barriers Where are the places where we genuinely do not agree with each other? And we can talk about those in ways that are loving and respectful and kind and conducive to conversation. Right? And then as we do that, as we learn those differences, we also realize that there are some points in commonalities in different religions that we can use as a bridge to begin to have very constructive conversations with people. Right? We don't believe exactly the same things that uh, Muslim people do or other people do, but there are some ways that you can start very fruitful conversations about Jesus. Right? So, for example, Christianity and Islam are both monotheistic religions. Right? Both of them, as opposed to a lot of other religions, they say there's just one God. Now, they understand that God differently, they define that God differently, but that's at least a place to start in a conversation. Who is your God and what does he mean to you? But let me tell you how that's different for me. Right? Both faiths are really based on sacred scripture. So you could easily have a conversation with a Muslim person about, you know, tell me about the role that scripture plays in your life. What does it mean for you to be a person whose life is formed and based on sacred writings? Let me tell you what that means for me. Right? Jesus, the person of Jesus, is something that you can have a conversation with people from a Muslim background about because they at least acknowledge that he was a historic person, that he was a gifted teacher and a prophet. Now, we, of course, believe differently than that. We believe he was all those things and also God himself. 
but at least he's a respected figure in their tradition, and you can begin to have a conversation that points people towards Jesus, that begins to point people to who he is and how he lives and how he, the difference he has made in our lives, because that, that's really the heart of the mission that God has given us, right? It's not to convince other people that we are right and they are wrong. It's not to sort of do the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting them of the error of their ways. Simply to talk to people. Say, let me tell you about what Jesus has meant to me. You know his life and his wisdom are available to you too. And if you study that for yourself, I wonder what impact he might have on your life. And see, that's what we need to bring to these conversations in our own lives, in our families, in the nation around us, as we start talking about how does this play out at a policy level. Because the truth is, we can't, as a nation that is filled with people who follow Jesus, we can't make sure that the national conversation about these issues is only driven by fear, that the voice of love doesn't show up in there. Again, our country, for right reasons, may make very different policy decisions than what we would want, but we have to be a voice in that conversation. A voice that reminds people that part of what God calls us to do, one way that he calls us to extend his love to others is to welcome the stranger. Is to care for people when they are needy and vulnerable. A voice of a follower of Jesus needs to pipe up and love and remind people that we follow a God who was a refugee for several years of his life as a child. Right? We've got to let that be part of the conversation. I think it's important for the voice of followers of Jesus to show up to remind people that if our mission is called to talk to people about Jesus, it is really hard to do that if they're not here, if you don't have any contact with them. And again, this is complicated. These issues are really complex. I was was talking with a guy after the first service today, and he said, you know, I appreciated your approach and what you said, and he leans over and he's got his Marine Corps vest on, and he said, but I've got some friends still in Afghanistan, and I wonder how this would play out for them. I said, you know, you're right. Those are complicated issues, right? There are issues, there's all sorts of security issues and things that need to be addressed, and there's a role for that. But I don't know what the answers all are, but I know the voices that need to be in conversation with each other if we're going to move forward at a national level, a societal level, at the level of a church and as a family and individuals in ways that honor what the love of God has done in our lives. So if you think about just sort of one aspect of this, like the, the Syrian refugees, right? Are there legitimate fears and security concerns for some of those people who want to get into our country? I'm sure there are. Now, I'm also sure that there are probably not as many security concerns as the news media wants us to believe because they hype things up to get ratings. But How do we do that? How do we address appropriate fears? What's the role of the military in that? What is the role of love in that? How do we address those fears while still realizing, okay, as a nation, how do we respond? What might God be calling us as a nation that was founded on Christian principles to do? So that might mean, as a policy decision, our country says no for good reasons. Or it might say, you know, we need to think about this. Or we need to improve the process that we use to vet the people as they come in. But the important thing for me, the thing that I'm trying to drive at, is that we have to make sure that that voice of love and what Jesus is calling to do is at least part of the conversation that we have. Because when we do that, and this is something that all of us, and me included, we just have to get comfortable with this. We need to realize that when we step out in love, we step out in love and we face the fears that we have, God's love is always going to lead us to take some risks that we might not be comfortable with. And I think that's true on every level you can imagine right? If you've got fears about your job, maybe you need to step out in faith and look for another one. There's risk involved there. 
Think about relationships that you're in, right? Maybe there's an estranged family member. And if you, if you take the risk to sort of step out and try to restore that relationship, there's a real risk that you could get hurt as they reject you or slap that hand away. To love always involves risk. Yet to love is what God has commissioned us to do. So part of the conversation that we have to have is what does it look like to appropriately balance the fears that we've got? Right? How do we make sure that the world is a safe world for kids like the McKeithens kids to grow up in? And yet also, remember, we can't let the fears just drive all of the decisions so that we get pulled away from the mission that God has given us. That's a complicated conversation to have, but it's one that we have to have because otherwise we miss out on the very reason that we are here, which is to share the love that we have received from God with people who need to hear it. You know, I think about examples of people I know who, who have done this well um, and, you know, one that I think about is my father-in-law. You know, it's really interesting because for years he's been involved with a ministry here in town to international students at TU, right? So I, I think about a relationship he had with one young man in particular, an African man named Muhammad who was Muslim. And, you know, he got to know this guy through the lunches that they would share together. He taught him how to play racquetball. He would invite him over for dinner multiple times at different times of the day to his house, showed up at our house for holidays and things like that. But, you know, I remember sometimes just based on the timing of it, right, Craig would be there preparing dinner and Muhammad would stop because it was time to pray. And he would kneel towards Mecca and he would pray there in in Craig's living room. And I'm positive that for my father-in-law, as a, you know, 70-ish-year-old guy who grew up in rural Missouri in the heart of the Bible Belt, it would have been really easy to look at this and think, this is just strange, right? This guy is different than me. In fact, this guy might even be a little scary or threatening because his belief system in some way contributes to the violence in our world today that I fear so deeply for my kids and my grandkids. But motivated by God's love, Craig didn't let fear drive the way that he interacted with him. So instead he kept at it. He got to know him and he realized that Muhammad was just a guy. Or he was a man. He was a husband. He was a father. And more than anything else, he was lonely. He was lonely because he was studying in the States for a couple of years while his wife and kids were thousands of miles away in Africa. So Craig just befriended him. He brought him here to church on occasion. And Muhammad left at least with a clearer picture of who Jesus is and how the love of Jesus can transform the way that followers of Jesus interact with people who are different than them. And it's interesting, but Craig was telling me that just a couple of weeks ago on Christmas, Muhammad called him from Africa. He said, Craig, you know, you're my friend, and I know that Christmas is a big Christian holiday. I know it's an important holiday in your faith tradition. So I just wanted to call you and say thank you. You know, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for the way that you welcomed me in in the U.S. when I was a stranger. Look, that may not seem like much, but that's how the world changes. One heart at a time one relationship at a time as individual followers of Jesus ask the question, how do I not not just sort of pretend like there's nothing scary in the world, but how do I realize that inspired by the power of love, there is a way to live in spite of my fears so that God's mission moves forward. And that's just what I want you to hear this morning. For you, wherever you are today when you think about fear, right? maybe when you think about what you're afraid of, it is some of this really scary political stuff happening around the world. Maybe you've got fears for the future and where college is going to take you or where relationships will turn out. Maybe the fears are about work and is it ending and when will the economy turn around or it's fears based on your relationship with with people or, or decisions that people that you love are making. 
But what I really think God wants you to hear this morning is that he does not want you to have the spirit of fear. That's not how you were created to live. That spirit of fear doesn't come from him. He wants to give you a spirit of love and power. And he wants that to be what drives the decisions you make, the experiences you have in this world, the way you navigate an increasingly complicated and scary world. So if you're here this morning and fear is what's driving the decisions, fear is the first thing that pops in your mind when your eyes open in the morning, I just want you to know that there is a God who loves you. A God who loves you so much that fear does not have to control your life and your thoughts. And the truth is all of us are afraid of things, right? Because all of us are broken and it's a broken world. But that's, that's the very heart of the gospel message. Though while each and every one of us are more broken than we will ever know, we are also more loved than we can ever imagine. We, you, me, we are all more loved by God than we can ever imagine. And if we can experience that love, that love can fill us with a sense of God's power. And that can change the way that we live in our relationships and in our world. So as we pray to close out this time together, let's just think about that. God, Thank you for the opportunity to be here together today and to hear this. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of a world that is pretty scary and frightening at times, we can remember that you did not give us a spirit of fear, but you gave us a spirit of love and power and self-discipline. And God, these are complicated questions, but the answer to them, the answer to the question of what does it look like to follow you faithfully in this world today, what does it look like to live controlled by a spirit of love and power, it's to know you. It's to know your heart. It's to draw closer every day to the love and the life that you have for us. So God, as we close out our time together this morning singing this final song, I just pray that these words would become our prayer. That you would draw us closer to you. And that you would help us realize that your love, the love you give us, is stronger than anything we may face in this world. Amen. Amen.